Do you like unicorns? Are you excited by what new providers might join your primary care team? Are you wondering if there are some more unusual and focused roles that might work well in primary care? Yeah, me too. Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. I'm Sarah, a medical anthropologist and team member in the Innovation Support Unit in the Department of Family Practice at the University of British Columbia. And I'm Morgan, a family doctor and also a team member in the Innovation Support Unit. With the increased focus on team-based care and new funding models that are emerging, we're seeing the addition of some new roles to primary care teams. So there's a number of new professions that are starting to work more in primary care, and these aren't quite widespread. So Morgan, we always joke that we look for unicorns to join our team at the ISU, people with unique skill sets that are able to fill gaps and address emerging directions across the team in a number of areas. As primary care teams expand and the idea of team-based care becomes more widely socialized, I think, this creates new opportunities for roles that have maybe been more focused or in acute care to really move into primary care. Yeah, we've been hearing more about the inclusion of new roles in primary care. Now, this has mostly been funded through pilot projects or even research projects, and they do show promise. When we think about the value of expanding how people think about primary care and what the scope is, it's really important to think a little more broadly and think of what other roles can be part of the team. As we work our way toward the end of this season, we wanted to do an episode that's a bit different thinking about these kind of unicorn roles in primary care teams and the potential to expand the engagement of providers from more professions into primary care teams. A lot often comes down to funding models, Sarah, and I think that with the role of the PCNs and focus on team-based care, we do have this ability to think of those emerging edges of primary care where we might be able to get some additional capacity through some of these new roles supporting our patients. Morgan, what kind of roles are included in this bucket of potentially in primary care teams, but maybe harder to find in practice? Well, I think, Sarah, there's a bunch. We commonly think of the core of family doctor, MOA, nurse, and then there's others with a slightly expanded team that could include people like pharmacists, social workers, dietitians, physio, and OT. Those are some of the common roles that we're talking about. And then we can sort of think beyond that, there are other roles out there that may be referred to in secondary care. And some of those can be very successfully integrated into primary care teams. It depends partially on your practice into what your particular needs are for the patients that you're serving. And last episode, we talked about Indigenous support workers as a new and emerging, really important role. And I think they have a more general value across all the PCNs, but they do have a higher need in certain populations. So there's a number of these kind of roles, I think, that we're starting to see more often and are becoming more commonly considered when you think about what's included in that primary care bubble. We also have other roles that are really unique in primary care contexts. And we spoke to a couple people in our interviews for this season who are the only person in this role in the province. So in particular, we have two roles that I wanted us to dip a toe into. So the first is kinesiologists in primary care, and the second, genetic counselors. First, let's talk about the example that we have of the inclusion of a kinesiologist in a primary care team. What can kinesiologists do? It's a good question because I haven't worked with one in a team. Now, kinesiologists are really focused on active components of rehabilitation. So mobility, balance, exercise, movement. 
my own family doctor was trained as a kinesiologist. And so I kind of have that on my own personal team, but they really help focus on healthy movement and activity and can help with different other kinds of injuries. You know, when I did a little bit of background research here, looking into like, what's the difference between a kinesiologist and a physiotherapist? Kinesiologists can also help with musculoskeletal injuries, but there's a little bit less of an acute injury focus than you often see in physio and more of that sort of longitudinal, getting people to think about exercise differently, that kind of focus in kinesiology. And Sarah, until recently, I didn't think we really had any examples of kinesiology in primary care in BC. The first time I meet someone, it's really just getting to know them. And a lot of time in the beginning, I think, is dispelling any myths they may have about physical activity in their mind, figuring out what everyone's concept of being fit or being active is like. I think there's a lot of saturation in social media that being healthy and being fit looks a certain way. And we spend a lot of time undoing that and trying to bring it back to the individual. How do they want to move? Why is it important? And grounding their rehab in that and grounding their kinesiology care in how do you want to move that's not going to stop you from living the life you want to live? We do a functional test. And I ask the patient to move their body around. I may manually move their body around to see how their joints and muscles move together. And then we do a cardiovascular test. As part of the change program, Carmela DeGracia Patton is the only kinesiologist that we know of working in primary care in BC. Now, the change program was created by Metabolic Syndrome Canada and NBC. We have a number of clinics who are currently engaged in this pilot, which sees patients with metabolic syndrome, so prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, working with kinesiologists in their primary care team that also includes a dietitian. When Carmela described to us how she works with patients, what really stood out to me was the value of the time she sees being able to spend and work with patients to build up their fitness. What's really unique is the time that I get to spend with patients, and I'm hoping this is something that never changes that hour, if we use it all, is the key I find for me to make that bond and earn that trust. People can adapt to movement very slowly, but sometimes people can also adapt very quickly. And if you're not there as a practitioner to see them progress in the moment, then you may miss something and miss a moment to advance their rehab a bit further. And having an hour, that time with patients is so valuable for building trust and also for supporting the rehab and movement and tracking fitness over time. And with all the fitness, Carmela talked about the importance of accessible space for kinesiologists to work with patients in primary care. I think what comes to the forefront is a designated exercise space and accessible to the patient. I've done some virtual care so people can move in their homes. However, I don't think there's anything that replaces moving with a person right in front of you in a place where they feel safe. So if you can have a safe movement space for the patient to arrive consistently every time, I think that's the first place to start. It, equipment doesn't have to be fancy. Certainly, sometimes having different types of equipment is a luxury. You just need something to hold on to, maybe something with a little bit of weight and resistance, and you can make a lot of strides with people. So yeah, a safe space to move and a little bit of equipment to move around, and, and that's a good starting point. The change program presented at the Team Up webinar, and so we'll make sure that if people are interested, they can see the webinar. We'll put a, a link in our show notes. So that's the kinesiology kind of one-off role that we have in BC right now. The next role I was hoping to do a bit of a quick case study exploration of is the role of the genetic counselor in primary care teams. 
And I know that it's actually your clinic, Morgan, where some of the first pilot work for the integration of this role in primary care is happening. Sarah, this is, as far as we know, the first time that a genetic counselor actually worked in primary care. And it was part of a research study. And I got to be the sort of the local investigator in that in our clinic. So Kool-Aid was one of the first that we know of to have a genetic counselor. And we were lucky to have Priscilla work with us for a year. Well, I think part of the interest in bringing a genetic counselor to Kool-Aid was because of the fact that genetic counselors can and have specialized in mental health. So my training is in psychiatric genetic counseling, and so that was the initial draw. And so essentially, a large focus of my work, especially at the beginning of the integration at Kool-Aid, was looking at helping clients better understand the role of genetics as well as environment um, when we think about causes of mental illness and ways to promote recovery and management. As the integration went on, I was also able to help clients who were at the time kind of trying to better understand the role of genetics as well in terms of other illness, whether that be a family history of cancer or, you know, a personal history of complex medical concerns and a question from their perspective of whether they may have a genetic condition that could explain what they had been experiencing and where, you know, a genetic counselor might fit and helping them in this kind of journey to get a better understanding. Morgan, so what is it that genetic counselors do? I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions here. So, sir, I don't think there's misconceptions, but there's a there's an understanding of what they do at a genetic office, so a geneticist clinic. What they can do in primary care is unclear, and that's part of what we were exploring. It's not just prenatal counseling and you know making sure that the right screening tests are done for women who are pregnant, but there's a lot more. Janine Austin, who's a genetic counselor and researcher, has done a lot of work in mental health in specialty clinics with genetic counselors. And so we built off that at Kool-Aid to see what genetic counselors could do. And so there's a, a large focus on helping patients understand the genetic and environmental components to mental health. And we were looking to explore the other aspects around supporting and counseling patients around other chronic illnesses. What we know from some of our research is that when people hear the term genetic counseling, there's a whole bunch of things that pop into their head as associations, most of which are wrong. So the first thing to know is that genetic counseling is not the same thing as genetic testing, right? You can have and benefit from genetic counseling even without any kind of genetic testing being offered. Whereas I would argue that probably if you're going to have genetic testing of some kind, you might want to think about genetic counseling as well. But it's about more than just testing. It's really the key. Both Janine and Priscilla really felt like that there is this misconception about what genetic counselors actually do. This idea of genetic counseling being limited to something that's done for pregnant people. And, and if I'm being honest, that's my experience with genetic counselors, right? That's when we got to go through and kind of beat this new role that I really didn't know anything about was when I was pregnant. That's really how I thought of the role until we started these conversations. Yeah, I think it's a limitation of people's understanding. And absolutely, when Priscilla joined us, which was a few weeks before the pandemic, <laughs> that's what we talked about as the team was that, well, what is Priscilla going to do? We don't do a lot of prenatal care. And then it, the second thing was, well, what about rare diseases? And can she order all the rare disease tests? So do we now not need to refer? So it really was limited to those two parts in the conversation. And then over time, that started to expand in terms of the knowledge. And the counseling part of the skill set really became important. And I think that that's something for us to think about in primary care is that we do have a need for a significant amount of that counseling support. 
And genetic counselors are very well trained in trauma-informed counseling and supporting people. So what can genetic counselors do? They can support specific subpopulations, so maternity, Mm -hmm. chronic disease, cancer, mental health. Yeah, so I think that idea of helping people understand their own health and what is it that contributes to the development of the conditions and the management, using that idea of environment and the genetic component or the nature and nurture, I think that can be a really powerful short intervention that genetic counselors can do to help. The other thing that I really learned in our conversation is that they can take a different kind of medical history that can give people new perspectives. And Sarah, in our pharmacy episode, we talked about how pharmacists take a best possible medication history. When I've seen Priscilla in action, she takes the best possible family history. That's so interesting. I mean, I think they can also really help people understand this combined effects of genetics, but also experiences and how those can act together. Janine does a way better job of explaining this than I'm doing. I specialize in psychiatric conditions. Psychiatric conditions are not what I would refer to as being genetic conditions. They're not. They arise as a result of the combined effects of our genes and our experiences acting together. So there's a genetic contribution, but that's not the be-all and end-all, right? But in in that situation, we're helping people understand how exactly how those things contribute together to the development of these conditions and how we can use that as a framework to better understand how we might be able to take better care of our mental health for the future. Now, Priscilla also elaborated on this idea of the value of working with a genetic counsellor. I think for the clients who were interested from the perspective of mental health, they were really keen to really talk to a healthcare provider that could give them a different perspective on their mental health. I think they appreciated that part of it would be taking that unique perspective, using the family tree as a tool to discuss family history. That was something that they didn't have that opportunity in other types of counseling that they might have encountered. Or, you know, we know that the time pressures kind of within an appointment with a physician are very limited in terms of having to really address all their complex needs. As an anthropologist, in this broader scope of what genetic counselors can do, I think the in-depth family tree tool that they work with is really interesting. In our conversation, Priscilla also spoke to the importance of really bringing a trauma-informed lens to this work when you're looking at family trees and family history and really addressing concerns of team members in this space by giving them the chance to really get to know how she works. So I talked about the example of how family history was something that drew people and clients to genetic counseling in terms of that unique experience. It was also perceived by the team as potentially something that could trigger some past um, traumas for clients who are reflecting back, right, and thinking about other generations and family members impacted by mental illness. And honestly, part of the process throughout the integration was, again, trying to ensure that the clinicians were aware, as well as my clients, in terms of the trauma-informed and culturally safe approach that I was taking in my genetic counseling practice, especially with taking the family history. Part of that was working with a team. I had done initially a presentation to the team to talk more about myself, my training as a genetic counselor, but also my clinical experience and research experience working in mental health to help reassure my team members with that particular challenge. The onboarding that Priscilla did was really important, partly because of those limited or misconceptions of what the scope is, but also in understanding how to introduce a genetic counselor to patients 
And in fact, we felt a little awkward. Is there something genetically wrong with me that I need to see a genetic counselor? <laughs> and that was something that we had to figure out a way of navigating so that not only did our patients feel comfortable, but we felt comfortable engaging Priscilla as a team member. And once we did, the patients found it valuable, but we had to get over that hurdle. And the addition of these maybe less common roles in primary care, what it does is it really can enhance the access to targeted supports for our patients. And each practice is unique. Each community is unique. And it's the potential for breaking down some of those silos and bringing more of the care that's needed for the practice into primary care that I think is exciting. And this is something that both Priscilla and Janine spoke about in our conversations. My time at Kool-Aid really opened up my eyes in terms of the client populations that I may not have been able to really connect with outside of this primary care setting, right? Because I think the current model of genetic counseling being primarily siloed in like specialty tertiary clinics, it does prevent clients from really directly accessing it. In many cases, when you think about those barriers, just having a genetic counselor located in a hospital presents a barrier. Historically, genetic counselors have been siloed away, right? It's a tertiary care service. You know, you need a referral from somebody to go and you go off to a specialist center, usually in a big urban teaching hospital kind of environment. And that's where genetic counselors are located. And that creates problems in terms of things like access and equity for patients. So this concept that we're talking about today of integrating a genetic counselors into primary care practice teams is actually quite a novel concept. And it has enormous potential, I think, in terms of, <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm going to be really bold, realizing the quintuple aims of healthcare in the primary care practice setting. That is, we're looking for ways to improve patients' experience of care, to improve patients' health, to improve equity, save money, and improve the experience of providing care all at the same time. I think that there are creative ways that we can think about doing that that involve, for example, genetic counselors. And, you know, having more novel roles embedded in primary care teams really does enhance the accessibility of these services and supports for patients. To wrap up this episode, and before we move into our action ideas here, I want to loop back to where we started with Carmela and her work in a primary care team as a kinesiologist, and what motivated her to move into this kind of uncharted territory with her profession. I'd worked as a kinesiologist in Nanaimo for five years. And kinesiology, I realized, was a service that was only really accessible to people with the right type of third-party insurance. So those who might have been in motor vehicle accidents or workplace injuries. Or I also spent some time on the high-performance side working with athletes. And a lot of times I find money follows sport. So those individuals had the means to pay for my services from a performance side. But there's kind of this middle group that I found got left behind. It is empowering people back into their bodies. But what is really fulfilling is being able to serve that population that I wasn't able to in the past. It's nice to be able to offer a service that right now is feels really equitable and is accessible, especially in northern BC. There are actually many more of these less common roles that could be incorporated into primary care. And so much potential here to think about to improve access to care. There really is. And I think, you know, we may revisit this idea in later seasons of Team Up or as one-offs if we hear about interesting or new to primary care roles being integrated into teams. So... 
To wrap up today, what did we learn? I think the integration of these less common roles in primary care, one of the bigger barriers is lack of knowledge that it's possible and then potentially what the value is for your practice and your population. I think the biggest obstacle is that it's so new. Like to do anything new for the first time is always hard, right? When it's not just standard of practice and everybody's doing it, then you just do it because everybody else is, right? So doing something novel is always scary. So I genuinely think that's the biggest barrier at the moment is that people who are in primary care practice teams, I think, don't necessarily know. It's hard to imagine how a genetic, I mean, frantically using giant air quotes here, listeners, um, how a genetic counsellor might be able to be useful in the context of a primary care practice team. I think that there's like a a bit of a leap of faith required there in terms of thinking about the bigger picture. It is a bit of a leap of faith. And it also requires creating intentional time and space to build those relationships and let the team get to know each other, to really understand what some of these newer roles do and how they can be useful. And if you are bringing on a new team member in one of these more unique roles, just like any new team member, you really want to think about onboarding, both for the team members and for patients. Priscilla gave us a great description of how shadowing can be a useful approach for onboarding. We started off with me shadowing for two weeks, um, essentially me spending time with first the physicians in their client medical appointments, and then slowly kind of introducing myself as the new genetic counselor, the new team member at Kool-Aid to clients. I had the nurse clinicians invite me to appointments as well to shadow them, as well as the registered clinical counselors. I think that all very much helped because I think one of the strengths of Kool-Aid is that they have already established this safe and supportive environment for their clients. And many of the clients have those strong provider, patient, client relationships. And so piggybacking off of that and having them introduce me really helped to bridge, I think, that sense of uh, building trust with the clients. And at the same time, increasing that comfort level with the clinicians with having me there and being part of the team. And that kind of shadowing idea, I think, is so useful when you think about what it can do in a team to get to know each other as well as share the trust from one provider to the new team member with patients. It's like warm handovers in action, right? In the same room, it's even better. So Sarah, to wrap up today, what are our calls to action? So as always, these are pretty generalizable beyond the kinesiology and genetic counselor roles. But if you do have a new role that you're bringing in, really creating opportunities for the team to build relationships and role understanding and to include the patient in that team, I think is so important. And then make those opportunities to have newer folks in the team shadow other providers. And this is a great way for team members who maybe even aren't new, but haven't worked together very often. Thanks for listening. Sarah, I can't believe we're almost at the end of season five. I know, it's gone so fast. Please reach out if you have any questions or ideas, especially if you have any ideas about what you might like to see us focus on in future episodes. Reach out to isu at familymed.ubc.ca. Join us next week for the final role episode of season five. 